eyebrow. So, besides, how old are you? On Periscope, what is a really <laughs> common topic that people ask you? Uh, yeah, right. It, I think anybody that's been there for any stretch of time has definitely seen probably three questions. One is, how old are you? Um, one is, what is deja vu and what is dreaming and that kind of stuff. And the other is either, what does weed do to the brain or what do various drugs do to the brain? And they also ask whether your background is real or fake. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that, I mean, that's a good question. And enough. in case you're wondering, it is real. It's she, definitely, definitely real. She's checked. <laughs> <laughs> Ian doesn't deal with fake stuff. Yeah, I don't do that fake stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about drugs. Let's do it. We're drinking some caffeine. We're which ready is, to talk which about is a drugs. drug. It's definitely a drug. Yeah, people... For some reason, people put, like, caffeine and nicotine and alcohol in, like, a different category as though, like, they do different things. They're, they're like the okay drugs. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, they're, they're like, grandfathered in because, like, grandfathers consume them, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Uh, but, no, I mean, if, if you were to compare what each one of them is doing in the brain, I mean, they're doing very similar things. They just happen to be hitting different parts of the brain. Okay, so we just mentioned caffeine, mm-hmm. alcohol, mm-hmm. nicotine. Right. Now, caffeine is definitely a stimulant, right? It's yes, an upper. That's right. As opposed to alcohol, which I believe is a downer. That's right. Yeah, podcast over. Dunzo. Nailed it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah, so, right. So, so what distinguishes a sedative from a stimulant or an upper from a downer is that they hit different receptors that are typically hit by neurotransmitters and those neurotransmitters are typically activated by environmental stimuli like running away from a bear or you're about to fall asleep Um, and so these drugs are basically mimicking those kinds of environmental stimuli so then what is the point of vodka and red bull (laughs) yeah that's a great question well first of all i think it's repulsive i think red bull's repulsive (laughs) but but i mean it's understandable right so you have overlapping pharmacological effects and you have distinct pharmacological effects. So clearly alcohol is doing something different than caffeine. So Red Bull, its principal component is caffeine. It has some other things in it too, but it's mostly caffeine that's doing the work. And both of these drugs, the overlapping feature is that they elevate monoamine uh, uh, neurotransmitter activity. So they mimic the activities of things like dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. And when it comes to caffeine that's in Red Bull, you get much more dopamine and norepinephrine activity and a little bit of serotonin um, activity, serotonergic activity. And when it comes to alcohol, you get much more GABAergic activity or inhibitory uh, activity. And so alcohol is a super duper complex drug. And really, it, like, it warrants its own episode because it is so complex. But one of the things it does is it sort of enables a circuit in our brain that's responsible for encoding how excited you are or how much you expect something good to happen. Um, and it, it sort of disinhibits that structure, that circuit. So it enables that circuit to be much more active than it would be otherwise. And caffeine is also stimulating that same circuit. So it's like dually rewarding. And you get to cope a little bit with the inhibitory, you know, intoxicant effects of, of alcohol. Okay, so we'll save alcohol for its own podcast. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. And we'll ingest alcohol while recording the podcast. <laughs> of course. Well, we, that's what we did right just now. <laughs> it's tea with alcohol. <laughs> No, no, it's not. No, I it's promise. Not. Yeah, that'd be gross. Okay. So going back to caffeine then, uh, tell me more about caffeine. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, so what is this thing in your brain doing right now? So caffeine is called a methylxanthine. It, it's a part of a family of molecules called methylxanthines. 
And what caffeine does is it stimulates via blockade of an inhibitory adenosine receptor. So this is a receptor that binds an amino acid called adenosine. And what adenosine does is throughout the day, it starts to build up over time. And what it does, what this buildup does as it binds its receptors is that it inhibits the release of a variety of neurotransmitters, including glutamate. Um, and so blocking its effects results in an elevation of signaling. And so by blocking the adenosine receptors with caffeine, you're increasing norepinephrine and serotonin uh, uh, signaling. I remember also reading something about how caffeine prevents your internal body clock from, I guess, observing the passage of time the same way, which is why you feel more awake as opposed to feeling like you've been awake for a long time and more tired. Yeah, yeah, that's that's like a great way to put it. So, so adenosine buildup in the brain is sort of like a clock because it just sort of happens steadily as the day goes on, the longer you've been awake. And so you're sort of like, like just removing that clock from the brain. So your brain doesn't even know that adenosine is building up because caffeine is in the way. And so is it okay for us to ingest as much caffeine as we do, especially for younger people and, you know, in high school or college who take caffeine pills or drink lots of caffeine or Red Bull to mm-hmm. stay awake and perform academically? Yeah, I mean, so this is actually a pretty contentious topic. And I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not a physician, as everybody knows, right? I'm, I'm a scientist. Um, and basically every year you're going to see competing claims. And so one year you'll see that caffeine, you know, inhibits bone deposition. And the next year you'll see that caffeine enhances cognition of some sort. Um, But basically, by and large, a recent review basically argued that if you consume under 400 milligrams a day, you're pretty much in the clear. Um, And now discussing sort of like its effects on development, that's a kind of different conversation. Um, And I think it's probably a little bit more complex than, um, than it's good or it's bad. Um, there's probably, you know, genetic susceptibilities to various effects of caffeine. Um, but just by and large, you can feel okay if you're consuming under 400 milligrams a day. That said, um, relying on caffeine pills or relying too much on caffeine to be able to perform, particularly when you're younger, it's not really a good long-term solution. Uh, because over time, you're going to become tolerant to the effects of caffeine on which you're relying to accomplish your tasks, right? So you're just going to develop a tolerance, and you're going to need over 400 milligrams at a certain point if you're relying so much on caffeine to get your tasks done. So, so it's really a helper. It's not like, you know, the main pusher of productivity. Is nicotine an upper or a downer? That's, a, that's actually a really complex question. Um, you will hear people say, actually, nicotine is a stimulant, but it relaxes you. And so nicotine, kind of like alcohol, is extremely complex. It's different, though, because nicotine does bind specific receptors. They're called nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, conveniently. Um, but acetylcholine receptors are very, very widely expressed um, or um, distributed throughout the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. Every time you move a muscle, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors are, are stimulated by acetylcholine. And so because acetylcholine receptors are basically everywhere, you can have stimulation, you can have anxiety, you can have reduced anxiety, um, you can have sedation. And so different people, because of the complexity of acetylcholine receptors, different people will be sensitive to different aspects of the pharmacological effects of nicotine. That's why some people seem to love nicotine, while other people are just nauseated by even the thought of smoking a cigarette. Um, there's a significant genetic component to how much you're going to like nicotine or how stimulating you're going to find it or how, how sedating you're going to find it. And speaking of sedation, mm-hmm. what about pot? Right, yeah, like the other thing that people smoke. <laughs> uh, to feel sedated. To feel sedated, yeah, right. So, Sometimes. <laughs> some, yeah, so, so again, cannabis, it, like, 
another really complex pharmacological effect here because cannabinoid receptors, again, are very widely distributed and they do really complex things. So like, for example, nicotine receptors, nicotinic acetylcholine receptors are what are called ionotropic. So they really, what they do is they either activate or inhibit neurons. Um, What cannabinoid receptors are, are G protein coupled receptors. And so that means that they activate a huge swath of proteins and molecules inside of the cell that then go on to do a bunch of other things. And it's not, I mean, it ends up in having neurons more or less likely to fire uh, action potentials or fire impulses, but it can influence a huge variety of other things. So is cannabis good or bad for you? What are the reasons why someone should smoke it versus reasons they shouldn't smoke it? Right. So, So we're pretty used to like interacting with physiology through doctors and and doctors meaning physicians. And when it comes to like medicine, you kind of do have to have, is it good or is it bad? But the reality is, as you learn more and more about the brain, you come to realize that there really is no black and white. Cannabis has pharmacological effects, just like other drugs have pharmacological effects. It just so happens that cannabis doesn't seem to be as dangerous as other drugs that people do recreationally. Um, But there are a group of people for whom cannabis can be dangerous. So this is like a minority of people, but acute exposure in individuals with like a psychotic disorder can exacerbate symptoms. And there does this, uh, like appear to be a genetic population that's uh, susceptible to cannabis-induced psychoses. Um, but this doesn't translate to all people with schizophrenia or all smokers, certainly. And this mechanism is pretty opaque. Like we, we don't really understand it. But the putative reason that it's interfering with neurodevelopment Um, like when, for example, when like young people smoke pot, which happens a lot, like in high school, for example, um, is that various processes are regulated by the cannabinoid system, right? It's really widely expressed. And so these processes include like axon elongation, you know, neurogenesis, neuronal maturation, neuronal specification, um, glial formation, right? The other (laughs) lesser known cell in the brain and even like neuronal migration, And so when somebody who's young is exposed to cannabis, this could exacerbate like a pre-existing difference in any one of these processes um, in somebody with like schizophrenia. So it can interfere with like certain enzymes, um, like catechol O-methyltransferase, right? Um, A bunch of of different mutations that together might not be so problematic, but if you have cannabis on board during development, it can make the difference. And so we start to talk about something called like a window of exposure uh, during which developing brains are are particularly vulnerable. And so, like, for example, epidemiological studies have shown that those who begin younger, those who begin smoking pot at at younger ages are at a higher risk of schizophrenia. And and some studies suggest that the only association between between psychotic disorders and weed occurs if the smoking began before the age of 14. So, So adolescent exposure appears to be associated with a higher risk of psychosis later on in life. And the risk is dose related. So, so there is like, like the more you smoke pot at younger ages, the more likely you are to develop psychoses later on in life. But the majority of people who consume cannabis experience no psychoses. So, so th- this debate as to whether or not cannabis is good or bad for you is kind of plagued by exaggeration on both sides. Um, and I think it's just we need to be honest about, you know, what the risks are and what the risks are relative to other drugs that everybody's okay with, like alcohol or nicotine or caffeine. So that's kind of mind-blowing, where, you know, you, you can take a drug, but it's not this little fun jaunt for a couple hours. You can be affecting your long-term brain development. Right, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, for the most part, for most people, um, cannabis is pretty benign, right? And that's why it has this reputation as being, like, totally non-addictive and totally benign. 
And yes, in comparison to things like alcohol that are highly addictive or nicotine that's extremely addictive, it is less severe. But yeah, I mean, during development, when a lot of people are experimenting with drugs, there is a certain subpopulation that is at risk. Um, and, you know, we just need to be realistic about that. So, like, if, you know, if you have kids or you're a kid and you know you have a family history of schizophrenia or psychoses or bipolar disorder or whatever, just be honest about that fact because you just so happen to have the architecture, the neuronal architecture that is that has a risky relationship with cannabis. Okay, so that's sort of one end of the spectrum, this mostly mild uh, drug in terms of, of its effects. What about the other end of the spectrum? What are some of the worst drugs? Okay, so you're talking about drugs that are like super addictive, right? Like heroin, cocaine. Super bad for you. So just super bad for like, you. Like there's no redeeming quality whatsoever. Uh, okay, so there's no redeeming quality whatsoever. <laughs> okay. What about like that crocodile stuff? Oh, you mean like crocodile? Crocodile. <laughs> okay. Well, so that is, crocodile is like an example of a highly, highly adulterated analog of an opiate. So, so an opiate is like, like heroin is an opiate, morphine. And crocodile, I would put that in the same category as like bath salts, where it, it doesn't really describe one particular drug. It's like an attempt to mimic the effects of other drugs by altering molecular structures or by putting a cocktail of different compounds in the same substance. And let's just call it crocodile. Let's just call it bath salts. Um, but like, like when you say a drug that has no redeemable qualities whatsoever, like heroin, for example, okay, it's super duper addictive. It's probably the most addictive stuff, substance on the earth. The withdrawals are so severe, right? But it actually doesn't kill nervous system tissue. Like you can take too much of it and stop breathing and die from respiratory failure. Like that's a problem, <laughs> right? And when you hear about celebrities that die from heroin or oxycodone, that's what's happening is that usually they combine it with another drug that amplifies the effect of respiratory failure. Like they'll drink and take oxycodone at the same time or they'll take oxycodone and Valium, you know, or, or Xanax at the same time, and they'll stop breathing. But heroin is a very effective painkiller. Like, it, it's, it's basically an alteration of the morphine molecule. And morphine, as we all know, it's very helpful in killing certain kinds of pain. And similarly, when it comes to cocaine, right? Cocaine is super duper addictive. It's super stimulating. And it's associated with, like, basically inducing bipolar disorder, basically, right? It induces mania and then a crash. It's like depression. Um, but, I mean, it's been used for decades, maybe centuries, as a, like, local anesthetic. Like, it, it, it's well known to numb tissue because it's a sodium channel blocker. So much like Novocaine or Procaine or whatever that's used in the dentist to make your, you know, your lips slide off your face, right, because you can't move them. <laughs> like, that's what cocaine does. And so it's, it has some rede- redeemable quality. So probably the only one that I would say has zero redeemable quality. Like there's no reason for it to exist. And all it does is it's addictive and it kills neurons. And that's pretty much it. I mean, okay, there are molecules that will just kill neurons, right? Like 6-hydroxy dopamine will just kill your dopamine neurons. And that's a problem, right? But nobody's just going to voluntarily take that drug. It doesn't feel good. But the one drug that kind of approaches that level of toxicity with little benefit is methamphetamine. That's what I would have guessed. Yeah. So, so, I mean, amphetamine is a useful molecule, right? It's a stimulant. It gives you energy for an extended period of time. It, it's helpful in the treatment of, you know, conditions where it's difficult to maintain motivation for a specific task for an extended period of time, like ADHD, for example. Um, and it's helpful sometimes, you know, to treat like, you know, just sleepiness. If, you know, you need to perform, like you're a soldier or something, you need to perform. It's helpful for that. Um, and it's not as potent 
as methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is extraordinarily potent, and it can really get those dopamine neurons in the ventral midbrain to be extremely active, way more active than they would ever be naturally. And they can get so active that they can just become overactive and die, like kind of like overheating, right? Like, like a dog can overheat and die. Um, and same with a human, right? You can have a fever and die. It's, it's kind of similar to that, where neurons can only be so active before they start to just lose control and generate reactive oxygen species and then die. What are some drugs that the hippies used or were known for using during that time period? Yeah, it, it's funny when you think of like a d- family of drugs kind of defining like a generation. Um, but it's true. Like the 60s and the early 70s, like there was way more prevalent use of a family of drugs called psychedelics than there are today or probably have been since. I mean, people are still doing psychedelics for sure. I mean, there's no question. But for the most part, they're not doing the same kinds of drugs as people were doing back in the 60s because they're so illegal. Drugs that are like LSD um, or psilocybin, you know, magic mushrooms. Like you can get into so much trouble and the DEA is, it's very easy for them to detect if you have those on you. And so now a lot of those kinds of experiences, the psychedelic hallucinogen experience, um, has migrated towards the research chemicals. So a lot of times what will be in bath salts will be analogs of something like mescaline or analogs of a tryptamine like DMT. And you'll get a lot of the same effects, but um, it, it's just not as well studied. And so we don't really know exactly what they're doing. They're doing something similar, right? So there's like DMT, DPT, MIPT, DIPT, right? These are all very similar molecules to DMT, um, but DMT is much better studied than these other analogs. But in any case, what the hippies were doing were these psychedelics. So LSD was sort of like the mainstay of the, the hippie movement. So, you know, you might have heard of like Timothy Leary. Um, he was like a psychologist at Harvard who you know, was very well regarded. And he had this theory, basically, basically speaking, he had this theory that if you alter the neurochemistry of criminals who were violent, you could basically cure them of their, their violent tendencies. Um, very innovative, way ahead of his time. But unfortunately, he only had, he had like a restricted distribution of drugs at his disposal, right? Pharmacology back in those times was not nearly as sophisticated as, as it is now. And so he had, you know, the, the drugs that were around that could profoundly alter consciousness were psychedelics. And so like LSD and psilocybin. And, um, you know, they did change cog- uh, consciousness for a, a stretch, you know, a period of time. Um, but unfortunately, they were just not ideal. You know, they were very volatile drugs. Um, and they were associated with, a, we, they just weren't really understood. And so he ended up kind of spinning off. It's a very interesting story, by the way, Timothy Leary. Like, he, he's a very interesting guy <laughs> with a very interesting history. Um, but in any case, yeah, so it was the psychedelics. Okay, and you just mentioned bath salts. Why does... Why do bath salts make people want to eat other people's faces? I, I knew you were going to see eat people's faces. <laughs> yeah, so it's funny. Like, Florida. <laughs> yeah, of course it was Florida, right? Shocking. Um, it's funny. It was like this perfect confluence of events where bath salts were just being recognized, even though these, these research chemicals had been used for, for literally a, like decades beforehand. They had just sort of reached prominence, social prominence. People like, are, now know that people are taking them, that they're around. And there was this super violent crime, um, and it just turned out that this guy was not on bath salts. <laughs> he was probably psychotic or something. Um, and so it, it is incorrect to suggest that bath salts intrinsically predispose people to becoming violent, right? That's not what they're doing. 
And and basically, so bath salts, and it's a very, very wide variety of chemicals that can be in bath salts, which is what makes it so difficult to predict what somebody's taking, right? So you walk into a head shop and they have, you know, some some product called, you know, whatever it might be, K2, or that's not really bath salt, but like, um, you know, whatever, it might be Craze or something. They, you know, there's a bunch of different names and not one, one bath salt isn't necessarily present in every head shop across the country. Um, but they all basically emerge from efforts to generate effects that are kind of similar to MDMA or like ecstasy, you might have heard, or molly. Um, and they're, they tend to be derived from the same sort of st- structural skeleton, and it's either amphetamine or cathinone. Um, and, but basically what they all do is they increase monoaminergic signaling. So this is dopamine, uh, serotonin, and norepinephrine. And the differences in behavioral profiles reflect the differences in the balance between the effects of the, these three monoamines. So, for example, like amphetamine is 50 to 100 times more potent at uh, dopaminergic uh, proteins or targets than uh, serotonin. But MDMA is more potent at serotonergic targets than dopamine. Three times more potent as an inhibitor of the serotonin transporter than the dopamine transporter. So it results in the releasing of 1.5 times more serotonin than dopamine. And then if you were to compare that to like cocaine, which kind of has similar effects, it's obviously a different drug, but it has similar effects, um, the addition of a certain structure um, to the chemicals. It's an aromatic ring in the para position for any of you chem- chemistry dorks <laughs> uh, results in, in much greater serotonergic activity. So do you remember that that story, John McAfee or McCaffrey? Do you remember that guy? McAfee antivirus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so that guy, so if you guys haven't heard of this guy, you got to go check out the million of articles that are about him on the internet. But um, this guy is a brilliant guy. He's like a multimillionaire. And he basically like retired to Belize and he just started doing a research chemical. He just started doing what would be a bath salt, MDPV. Um, and it's, it's a lot like cocaine. It's not the same. Um, but they um, kind of share pharmacological activities, right? And that's why they have a lot of similar effects. They in- increase mood. They also increase libido. Um, and so, and they're both, in comparison to like amphetamine, for example, they're both not substrates for transporters like amphetamine is, but they do inhibit monoamine transport and prevent reuptake after release. And so they have like kind of similar action, but slightly different action. Um, and that's why you get different effects from cocaine uh, than you get from amphetamine. Um, or MDPV than you get from MDMA. And so just to get a little bit more specific on what could be in bath salts, we're talking about drugs that I'm sure the vast majority of you guys have never heard of, like benzodrone, butylone, ethylone, 4-MEC, uh, mephedrone, or methylone. And so these are all drugs that became extremely po- uh, popular across the world, like particularly in the UK, mephedrone. This was a drug that some people called meow meow or 4-MMC. Um, and it became extremely, extremely um, popular. Like, there were videos of people snorting huge lines of this drug that nobody really understood. Nobody had studied. It was just a slight alteration of a cathinone. Um, and so it had very similar effects to amphetamine, very similar effects to, to MDMA, but slightly different. And because nobody was regulating these drugs, right, it's not like there's some regulatory body being like, you know, the labs that are synthesizing mephedrone. You have to make sure that you have 99.9% purity. Like, nobody's doing that. And so you started to see wacky things happening, like people's knees were turning blue, people's elbows were turning blue. Yeah, it's pretty wild. That's weird. Yeah, it, it was gross. And so you saw all these posts on the internet where it's like, I've been doing mephedrone for like five days straight. And it's a, it's a stimulant, right? And so they, they can't sleep, they don't eat, um, and they're, they're freaking out, right? They're starting to get really paranoid. And they're like, I'm pretty sure my, my knees are blue, and I'm not sure <laughs> because I'm like pretty messed up. <laughs> uh, and it, it was true, like people's knees, people's appendages were turning blue. Um, but eventually, you know, world governments caught up to the fact that people were doing this, this substance, and they banned it. 
And so it's like, like bath salts are a great study in how effective, you know, um, prohibition can possibly be. So yeah, so the DEA and the equivalent organizations internationally catch up to mephedrone, they ban it, they can test for it. But now you have people just doing benzodrone or, you know, 5-APB, drugs that like nobody knows about. Um, and it's just going to keep happening, you know. So I, I think it's an interesting model to study when considering how to legislate, you know, uh, drug use. Okay, so that was everything I needed to know about drugs, right? <laughs> no more questions. That's the, that's the entirety oh of the God. body of knowledge. So much pressure. <laughs> yeah, so like we literally just scratched the surface. This is a very, very deep topic and one that I find extremely interesting and one that I'm definitely going to revisit um, because each one of these categories has like a wealth of information to learn and, and you know, um, can, can lead us to learning a lot more about consciousness in the brain. So this was really just, just scratching the surface, superficial discussion. Um, and, you know, we can definitely look forward to, to talking a little bit more specifically about, you know, what is that distinguishes a cathinone from an amphetamine, for example. But yeah, no, not quite. This is a good primer. <laughs> okay, so the lesson learned is stick to under 400 milligrams of caffeine a day. Got that, guys? <laughs> yeah, that was what this whole thing was about.